Welcome back to another episode of Money for Nothing, a podcast about music and capitalism. The podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and as always, I'm with Sam Backer, and we got a history show for you today. You'll be hearing an interview that Sam did with Kyle Barnett about his record cultures, the transformation of the U.S. recording industry book that came out this year. The book covers a key period in both music and media history during the 1920s and 1930s that was full of massive technological and cultural change and then uh, dives into how the record industry really started to become what it is today. Yeah, no, I mean, this book, I really love this book. Coming out in paperback soon. So if you want to snag a copy for less than like an academic hundred and fifty dollars i don't actually know if that's the real price but coming out that book is going that book is going like 68 to 80 dollars yeah yeah paperback soon no 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 no. it's coming out in paperback that's you know that's 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 where you can actually purchase a copy um no uh side note academic publishing a genuine racket yeah totally (laughs) we we talk a lot about rackets on this uh, (laughs) podcast and that is another one but uh, we'll, in the coming years, we'll be launching a new podcast about acad- the academic book industry. We, yeah, no, we know you can't wait. Uh, <laughs> we, we, need, we already have like a niche, a niche topic here. We needed, we needed something a little bit more niche. Yeah, we, we think we've, we've gotten too general. We need to really yeah, too general to, yeah, hone in yeah, yeah. on the knife's edge of irrelevancy. Uh, <laughs> so no, no, no. This, this book is really awesome because it tells a story that um, despite its incredibly self-evident importance, has been not overlooked. It's this other weird thing that happens. It's not been overlooked because lots of books sort of like gesture towards it vaguely, and but almost no one has actually done like a focused look on, okay, the record industry. How does it start? How does it evolve in the 20s and the 30s? And this book, does that and looks at how the industry evolves, how the industry interacts with and shapes the kind of um, the emergence of various streams of popular music, in particular uh, kind of country slash hillbilly music and um, quote unquote race music, which uh, the blues and jazz, which have slightly different paths, as you'll hear. Yeah. And and so it's it's an incredibly important topic and it's, and in many ways, it's incredibly important because more or less, this is the system we still have um, and the system that is very much still in control of the music industry and watching it kind of take its first baby steps and kind of unfurl its terrifying demon wings is like, uh, uh, you know, it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things I really... I really uh, I liked about this interview and about this book that, that, that you'll hear about is the ways in which it challenges some kind of basic narratives about the music industry. Something we also do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, think back to like um, when uh, 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 official friend of the pod, David Turner, came on and kind of talked about the uh, the kind of false narrative of the major labels in the wake of uh, a variety of financial and business crises in the early 2000s, the way that shapes things. And, and one of the thing that I think we tend to think about is the music industry as kind of like a standalone industry that functions on its own, that exists in its own little silo and produces a consumer good that kind of in its truest platonic sense is like music, just music. And sometimes, you know, 
there'll be, you know, uh, a Frank Sinatra or a Madonna who's like a musician and an actor or an actress. Or like there'll be a big soundtrack. You can think of all these times when like um, various metaphorms kind of mix uh, along the edges. And I think that usually we tend to think of those as like exceptions to the rules that we tend to like to think of our media sources as like media forms and art forms as like relatively pure. But actually one of the cool things about this book is it reveals how deeply like multimedia or the the term of art, I believe is intermediality, (laughs) how deeply intermedia these forms are. Right. So really briefly, like the record industry chugging through the twenties combination of economic crises and the rise of radio and the record industry kind of collapses for most of a decade there and you know it stars you know people that are still kind of famous in american music louis armstrong on one side or jimmy rogers you know the in many ways considered the kind of the father of country music on the other and these musicians aren't able to make the careers they want just selling records Um, In fact, for most of their careers, they're not able to make a living just selling records. They're always selling records and performing live on radio shows as kind of like MC entertainers and also appearing in movies and also selling merch and visual images. And that these kind of multiple streams of like content that can feel very like TikTok age actually have not just always been there but have always been central to the functioning of commodified music. And I think that a, that a long-term, like a long-duree analysis of the industry that incorporates the fact that this is one sector in a broader entertainment industry <laughs> and that these companies all have complicated connections to each other helps you get at, I think, a more accurate picture of, of these dynamics. And let's think about like the present, right? Like Sony, Sony is a major record label, but also a major film studio and also a major electronics manufacturer. And it's all of those things. And thinking that one of them doesn't impact the other ones. Um, or, or going back is, to it's crazy about the way that it impacts, like say our identity or how we like view the world or how we think about things. You know, TikTok is this, you know, major platform now that, is such a prominent part of our culture, but let's not forget that this is a private company that's harvesting our data and trying to make money and trying to learn how to then like turn around and like and market goods to us or give us services that we want, you know. And so, like, think about how much TikTok has impacted culture, pop culture, our conversations, you know, how, what we think is funny, <laughs> you know, like how, how we, you know, older people understand those crazy zoomers, like all of that is happening around a platform that's basically a private company that's main goal is to make money and sell things essentially. And that also plays a role and that plays such a major role in culture. And then yeah, you do get uh, this complicated yeah for lack of a better word, like inextricability is how I think about it, right? Which is that at one level, I'm like, no, the exploitative companies that are like taking your data and selling the data, like don't love them. On the other hand, the human creativity that's not just goes into those platforms, but like let's also give the devil his due, right? That's unlocked by those platforms. The ease of 
networking and the ease of creation, those tools that TikTok develops, the ease of sharing, do allow people who would never have like made short movies to make short movies and interact and unlock stuff that they didn't know. And in the same way, these record companies, right? Just the fact that you could get on the radio led people to try to make music that would get them on the radio. The fact that you could make a living playing stuff that maybe you'd only make like, you know, it was like a side hustle previously changes the way that these musical communities operate and does necessarily, I think, produce new kinds of art. So it's not just new meaning, but it also is like new forms of human expression that emerge out of, and again, like inextricable with these corporate systems that are splitting black and white music for profit, for example. And I think that, you know, my, my cynical self wants to ask questions like what, you know, by satisfying that desire or that, or like motivating that human creativity, you know, what is that taking the place of in my actual real life? What, like, what is it servicing that I feel that I'm lacking that maybe this system and these things are also causing? But on the other hand, we have to be careful about imagining this previous society and world where like these things didn't happen and human creativity just came out of this like purified uh, environment or like platform or like world as well. And that's what we kind of always talk. We all, we also talk about that, that it's always been a complicated story. There's no like perfect pure moment. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking kind of, I'm thinking through this take and whether I still, you know, whether whether I fully believe this, but I mean, I do think that like there's something that something happens. I think speaking specifically about music, when people can become professionals, right? Like when you can do something and fully focus your energies on it, right? When there's the kind of um, separation of tasks that a system like capitalism is really good at, you know. Definitely something is lost, but also you do get better at doing the thing. And I mean, I think that you can see in certain areas where like a bunch of people play some music and that musical talent is widely distributed. But like if some people can make a living playing music, they get to play a lot more music and playing a lot more music is really helpful for getting better at playing music. Like you need the time to do this to get the skills necessary to do it at a really high level. Well, I think I think the other question for me though is it, it, it's it, you know it's yeah there's obviously advantage to the, the advantages to this and I think there's also strange disadvantages because also like capitalism it dangles a carrot in front of you that you're constantly chasing because say you saw some TikTok star like make a you know end up on a commercial or something and you want to be that person so then like a hundred million people do it and you spend all your time on this platform and really like it's you're just helping this company make money by harvesting your data and all and facial recognition and ai and all that but i i, w- I will say it's more like w- thinking about like alternatives you know because the alternative isn't that just none of this exists and we all you know live in like small little you know anarch anarchy communities and gather around while somebody plays the pan flute and like strums the acoustic guitar and that's like the epitome <laughs> that that's like the pinnacle of like human creativity like that's not going to happen either so it's kind of more like thinking about these things, thinking through these things, which I feel like kind of harks back to our last episode, which is, which, you know, and some of the concerns that I sort of expressed, which is, you know, like, yeah, like, fuck Spotify, sure. Yeah, get paid more. I'm with that. But what is the alternative? And 
you know, how, because the alternative certainly wasn't like the record industry in the 90s, you know, and the alternative certainly isn't, you know, my kumbaya scenario in which I just presented. Horrifying kumbaya scenario. It's probably also not. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Yeah. Well, someday we'll all move to California. Um, (laughs) 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 But it's also probably not Bandcamp either. You know, so it's also kind of just like thinking through these things and thinking like about like what are the alternatives and maybe it's like you said like we're so interconnected with these sort of platforms and it's almost like how do we kind of wrangle these platforms of these situations in ways in which you know are more fair or maybe more equal when it comes to like payouts or whatever but you know that's that's a whole argument and some would argue that that's not possible but i would also say that that uh, the, the interesting thing about this book and not getting too far away from it is that what you're seeing is that you're kind of seeing this formula that is is repeated and like while and while technologies change and you know obviously society changes and the genres change and the accessibility changes it's still like kind of like a similar formula going on and I think they haven't really changed now for like over a hundred years. I mean, it doesn't maybe fit up exactly, but there are like so many similarities. Is I think kind of what we're kind of driving at right now. Yeah, and I think that that it's not just similarities in what stays static. It's also like I feel like similarities in cultural cycles that I I think it's really useful to think about the changes that are going on now not just with a clear-eyed view of what happened previously. So, like, a real understanding of uh, label concentration during the 80s and 90s, or, like, a real focus on the kind of the, the cyclical downturns in the music industry that happen every 20 or 30 years, but also even, like, a, a longer time frame where you think about, like, well, like, what did it mean for the culture of the 20s and 30s that all the musicians were on a whole bunch of what were essentially platforms, Right. What did it mean that that's kind of more or less uh, ceases to be the central focus of music making, I guess, for at least two decades following the 60s, though, like a a historian of MTV might very much beg to differ. Um, And like, maybe what does it mean uh, that it's back again today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that this this one other thing that we kind of discussed recently that maybe we'll just touch on real briefly before we get into the interview with Kyle is we were noticing that, that kind of what's also real special about Kyle's book is that we feel that there's a real lack of coverage and like deep investigation and journalism into these kinds of topics and these histories and essentially the, the, the business economic side of things. And we were kind of like trying to just parse out like why that is, maybe why music journalism is so focused on the review or you know the 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 profile of the band on tour and like the recording of their latest album and like why there's sort of not really a focus on these histories or just the the business side of things or like the economic side of things. And I don't know what 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 are like you know. What are some of the reasons that you you, you feel like that, that that's lacking, and 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 uh, why is it important that we, if you feel that we should include we should have more of that? It's weird, right? It's it's super weird that there's basically no books about the music industry, the birth of the American music industry before this one, 
And like, if any listeners uh, know of like a really good book on the music industry in the sixties, please hit us up on Twitter. But like, I, there, I've not been able to find anything that that's, you know, focus on the artist. Sure. Focus on the artist fighting with their labels. Sure. Kind of industry tell-alls, like, shouts out to Hitmen, what a good book. But, like, those are kind of, like, vicious gossip fests more than anything else, albeit, like, incredibly entertaining ones. I mean, the one the one caveat to, to what uh, I think you said, and maybe to add another layer of complexity to it, Saxon, is that, yeah, I agree that the, the music criticism press doesn't do this, but there's also this long-standing like mu- music industry press, right? Like variety and they, they don't seem to they don't seem to touch or inter- interact variety that much. and billboard. No, and I, and I think that's like very intentional. Like musicnews.com or something. <laughs> like these like really sort of like janky 1.0 looking websites but they do amazing, great work. Amazing work. Shout out to everyone who's writing about the music industry like at a serious substantive level. No, but but I think that like you see something like that and like I can't help but think that it's such a clean break that it feels ideological, right? That that totally. there's 100%. And, and in some ways, I, I mean, not to go too big picture, but some of this feels like a little bit like, um, like a long hangover from like capital R romanticism, right? Like the idea that to be pure, art needs to be usually created by like, some soft boy male genius by himself having his meals sent to him in his rent-free tower that aside no but like this idea that the capital r romanticism that like art to at its best is kind of separate from the world in some ways alienated from in opposition to the world and so that good art is separate from the world bad art is kind of entangled in the world or even if you admit that all art necessarily is entangled in the world that in some ways the transcendent part of art the art part of art is still separate even though it it like it grows in the muddy field or whatever like in the you know in the um in the the gutters but like the great art is the thing that emerges out of it and the the industry stuff is the kind of gross things that are separate, right? The idea that there's a fundamental separation between the systems of production that surround music and music as a transcendental experience. And I feel like um, that's wrong. <laughs> like at the most basic level, it's incorrect. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it goes it goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, about like the, the Kumbaya moment that I was talking about is that this perception of, of of art or music or whatever happening you know any kind of art the perception of any kind of art happening within this vacuum or at a distance f f f within society or at a distance you know in a, in, a, in this like even semi-pure moment or semi-pure state is, is so false and bullshit and it feels like the people that are writing about it maybe unintentionally at this point or maybe never intentionally are kind of perpetuating that myth in a sense. And there's this very much like this formulaic sort of way of writing about an album, writing about artists that really tries to remove any of the sort of the nitty gritty, dirty sort of like money, you know, like 
lifestyle, funding, contract deals, lawyer like aspect of it, unless it's like making headlines like, you know, Taylor Swift is writing an open letter to like get her like masters back. And then it's like, okay, we'll talk about it. But even then we've often talked about that 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 stuff is like almost like just like a, a brief news article and doesn't actually really get into the long history of it or the in-depth like different crevices and, and issues that are around that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, it's just not sexy, I guess, in, in a way. I, I, mean, I, I blame Lester but, Bangs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, but the other thing that I feel like, uh, that goes back to literally episode one. Yeah, go listen to it. Um, <laughs> but like... Available. Available. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, is that I, I think that like whether or not adding, you know... Uh, a review of Taylor Swift's folklore to understand the process of production. You need to do uh, contextualize that in songwriting camps, in the sales of the previous five albums, in her relationship to her fan base mediated by the various kind of uh, platformizations of internet standum, and then also in relationship to the public disagreement of her masters whether or not you need to contextualize all of that for a review of taylor swift's folklore i do think that at another level like increasingly because of the ease of accessibility of music um because of the sheer quantity of music being put out that the idea of critics as gatekeepers like just doesn't make sense anymore because people are going to listen to it on Spotify well, the first, algorithm's going to you... serve it to them. And like, you know, we we mentioned last episode, obviously Liz Pelly has done great w- criticisms of that, but yeah, I totally agree. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense anymore. It's, it's just so accessible. I don't need to open up the back of a Rolling Stone or even necessarily like go to Pitchfork to find out what they're reviewing and giving best bu- new music up to hear something. Like I'm, I'm going to be serviced it in some way, whether or not, I, if I have anything connected to the internet, just to kind of even build off that. Right. There's a school of thought that, um, the aesthetics of a piece of art only matters in relationships to other pieces of art, right? And often in relationship to the broader cultures and societies that surround it, right? So classical music is high because it's in relationship to other things. And when there wasn't rock and roll, classical music meant differently, right? Those The meaning of the genres exists in relationship. The thing is, though, that means in some ways the meaning of a piece of art, like the aesthetic, your ability to interact with a piece of art aesthetically is also structured by all the other pieces of art that surround it. And what you kind of get, I think, with algorithms, right? And this is why I think that you, you need to incorporate this kind of like political economy of music in aesthetic criticism is you get algorithmic filter bubbles for art, right? What a rap album means is in relationship to the other rap albums released that year. And if you are served a different set of rap albums released this year than I am served, and that there's very, it's difficult because of these algorithms knowing or listening habits to break out of that, literally we can listen to the same thing and it will mean and sound differently. Which means that like what standpoint, what position does a critic have it seems to me that the only one is to be like, well, how does the algorithm work? But on that note, let's dive into the interview. You'll be listening to Sam talking to Kyle Barnett about his book, Record Cultures, The Transformation of the U.S. Recording Industry. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
so to, to my mind, um, this book is, is kind of two intertwined stories. And the first, in some ways, is about the structure of the record industry as an industry, and in particular, about the ways it interacted, not just different labels or different companies interacting with each other, but the way that it it um, engages with the broader and the shifting media landscape of the United States during its earliest period. Um, so what took you to, what led you to take that approach? Yeah, uh, well, thanks for that question. I appreciate it. Uh, so... I kind of uh, backed into this project. Uh, I've always had an interest in popular music and media. Uh, my grandfather ran a small electric shop uh, in southern Indiana in a small town, and he was an RCA Victor dealer for his town. And so when I would go and visit his house as a kid, he would have all this RCA Victor gear all around the house. So it would be record players and radio and disc recorders and promotional stuff and film-related things, uh, TVs and stuff. So for me, I think that impacted me in that I, I think I kind of thought of all those media forms as being connected in some way, uh, if only through RCA Victor initially. <laughs> but uh, And then I had the sense that you know, as I, you know, sort of worked through my academic training, I wanted to link sound recording as a medium with all these other media forms. So because of music's, um, you know, multifaceted nature, different academic disciplines get different pieces of the story. So, uh, but, you know, I'm in media studies and there is a tradition of, in communication and media studies, research on recorded sound in the recording industry, although it tends to be limited in certain ways. Uh, you know, there's a chapter in most introductory media textbooks that focus on sound recording and popular music, but later on when we study film or television or radio, uh, music's role and sound recording's role is somewhat obscured in weird ways. So no, and it, and it, it's it's an approach that's absolutely critical. I think not just because it not not just helps, but it's crucial for understanding how the music industry developed in the period that you're writing about. But actually, I mean, when we talk about this a fair bit on the show, it's crucial for understanding the music industry for a, a large portion of its history. Certainly now it's impossible to think about the music industry and accurately analyze it if you're only thinking about record labels. It's, they're all part of these complicated corporations and they all have these, you know, the ownership flowcharts. Uh, Sherry Hu, shout out to Sherry Hu for this fabulous, or, or like who owns what in the music industry flowchart that she's constantly updating. And as, as these buyouts continue, you know, this company owns 20% of that company, which owns 30% of that company. And in some ways, it's almost like, uh, you know, there is a moment like what, 1950 to 1975, <laughs> when the record company stands alone as an independent, uh, independent industry. But since then, like, 
it's always been intertwined with this broader story. Um, and so I just think it's such a useful and important viewpoint for understanding music really at, uh, and the music industry at, at, any, at any level. That really resonates with me. There's a couple things that come to mind. You know, the music industry is a lot of different things. And so, you know, I am careful in my book, like I, I, I always refer to the recording industry because I'm, you know, because I'm, I'm not really talking all that much in the book about live performance, or I'm certainly not talking about, you know, the sales of band instruments or sheet music or anything. But, you know, all those things are part of this larger music industry. You know, I'm really specifically trying to kind of put sound recording as a medium into conversation with other media industry histories. If we think about film and theater for a minute, and I know you've done some research on on theater and uh, performance in the 19th, early 20th century, film is able to distinguish itself from theater pretty early, whereas sound recording, the recording of music, never quite gets that much distance in the public imagination from musical performance. So we often conflate the two, I think, uh, you know, um, and so if we understand theater and film to be pretty distinct, we don't always think about uh, music as a medium as opposed to music as performance in quite the same way. And I think the one of the ways in which you see this is like in in radio histories, uh, like radio industry histories, they tend to talk about. Um, the the rise of radio as a positive impact on the music industry. And that's true if you're thinking about an artist promoting an upcoming show on the radio, doing like a live performance. But if you're talking about record sales, you know, the rise of radio is catastrophic in those first years, right? In the late 20s, early 30s, essentially radio is the streaming of, you know, 1934. Uh, and people are making the choice to buy radio and uh, consume music that way, as opposed to buying records week in and week out. Um, so, and by the mid 30s, you know, mid to late 30s, Victor becomes RCA Victor, Columbia becomes CBS, and the major labels in the record business are subsidiaries of radio. Uh, and so it's a huge change. At the same time, though, and I think this makes it somewhat different from like, um, I mean, even in the conglomerate era, there are constantly new labels, new platforms uh, in which music can emerge, uh, particularly when, you know, these smaller labels are key when we're starting to talk about niche genres and the emergence of, uh, you know, new uh, music. So like Sugar Hill and Tommy Boy with hip hop or um, sub pop and grunge or whatever it is. And the same is true in the 1920s, right? So all these upstart record labels are in search of new niches and they just record everything. I mean, everything and the things that sell, you know, they revisit and, uh, and pursue further. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, to think that like the record industry, the music industry 
it's both this huge conglomerated blob and this business with a very, very low barrier to entry where any, pretty much anyone can can get in and uh, and get to work. Uh, and I think that may, it's partly what makes it so interesting to me. Yeah. So, so let's start, I guess, um, talking about where, I guess, your book really picks up. And in some ways, the, the emergence of this first round of kind of independent labels. And it's interesting because we, we've done a, a fair bit of um, talking about independent labels um, on the show uh, focused more on the 50s. And I was really surprised to see almost exactly the same dynamic play out 20 years earlier. So maybe you can start just by telling us very briefly about kind of the, the big three in the landscape of kind of the, the major labels at this period of time, and then who these independent labels were and, and, and where they were working. Sure. The industry itself begins in the 1890s, uh, you know, first as a, a business instrument trying to replace stenographers, and this fails, and then as an entertainment device uh, with the recording of lectures and music and things. I'm picking this up decades later, but I'm, I do think I'm picking it up at a, a key moment. So what happens is um, in the late teens, uh, there are some court cases and some uh, patents and patents expiring and things that open up the recording industry for some new players. Uh, up to this point, the big three record companies are uh, Edison, run obviously by Thomas Edison and the Edison Company, Victor Records out of Camden, New Jersey. I'm a huge industrial works there. And Columbia Records, uh, which is the oldest, uh, I mean, one of the oldest in, in the history of sound recording. They get started in the business recording era in the 1890s. And so it's, it's Edison, Victor, and Columbia. Um, and they pretty much run things. They're mostly recording things that are in or around the industrial Northeast. So uh, they're not recording much beyond there, but there's a lot to record near there. So they're doing, you know, World War One marches and they're doing immigrant music and they're, you know, kind of, they're doing Tin Pan Alley and minstrelsy stuff and a lot besides that. But these new companies, there's a court case that's a, I won't get into it too much, but there's a battle over technological formats. And the court decision says that these new record uh, companies can use the same playback technology as Victor and Columbia had been using. So suddenly this meant that these upstart small labels could be played back on Victor and Columbia phonographs, right? So it's kind of a soft software hardware thing. Not to get too far in, into the weeds here, but it is really fascinating. My understanding, because again, something we talk about a fair bit is the ways in which these kind of legal battles, and especially copyright, really lays the kind of um, the landscape for so much of this stuff. And so, so my understanding is, oh yeah, the the battle was whether not. Whether these new companies could make records w via whatever process they're doing, could make records that would play on the 
the Columbia or the Victor machines. That is correct. And so these uh, these new small labels, one of these labels, a label called Jeanette Records out of Richmond, Indiana, sues Victor and wins. And this opens up uh, the possibilities because now uh, these uh, record labels can um, uh, make records that can be played on, you know, the most popular phonographs uh, around. Initially, they try to compete with Victor, Columbia, and Edison head on, and they quickly realize that they can't really do that. So then they start looking for niche record, you know, niche music and niche uses, you know, niche recordings uh, for niche audiences. And so they are recording everything. So, you know, Pennsylvania mining songs and Cajun music and Swedish folk songs and one-off personal records for fraternal organizations. Um, uh, indigenous tribes at the Grand Canyon. I mean, they're doing anything they can think of. Christmas messages, comedy records, presidential speeches, anything to try and find a niche. And then if the record sold, they would try it again. So a lot of the record companies that challenged the big three, Edison, Victor, and Columbia, were located in the industrial Great Lakes Midwest in Chicago, but also in small towns like Richmond, Indiana, and Port Washington, Wisconsin. And uh, these labels were seeking out new kinds of music, new new kinds of sounds. And they were doing this at the same time that we had this huge influx of uh, Southern uh, whites and blacks uh, in um, into these Midwestern cities, so and bringing their music with them. So uh, it's this really this is a fascinating moment in which these cultures are coming together, and these record companies, these relatively new companies, are recording a whole swath of American culture for the first time. Also, crucially, they're able to function in some way. In some ways, it's kind of mind blowing. They're able to function just as the manufacturers of discs, right, of content. They don't need to also be distributing hardware. I know some of them do, but they don't need Yeah, it, they right? did. Actually, it's weird how they get into it. get into it. It's counterintuitive, right? When in the present day you you think about someone gets into the record business, they make and, you know, they they get records manufactured and then they sell them. It's not what happened with these companies in the in the Midwest. Um Paramount Records in uh Wisconsin was a subsidiary of the um, Wisconsin Chair Company. And they initially made phonograph cabinets for the Edison Company. And then they tried making their own phonographs and then finally their own phonograph records. So they started in hardware and then they pivoted to software and then really focused on software after they figured out that that was maybe where the money was uh, for them. But it also, I guess, gives you a sense of how new, if, you know, for thinking about this as a media form, how new this is and how low the barrier to entry is. Yeah. And all the recording is acoustic recording. This is pre-electrical recording and playback. So phonographs are still mechanical in 19, the early 1920s and recording is still mechanical, you know, working on horns and vibrations and etchings into uh, master discs and um, very tricky 
to make good recordings in that sort of context. But the funny thing is early on, these record companies in the Midwest, they kind of feel like they need to be on the East Coast. So for instance, Paramount uh, starts a company called the New York Recording Laboratories. And I think they were, I'm not even sure if how long they had a operation in New York, if they did really at all. Um, Jeanette Records had a studio in New York uh, as well, I think maybe in Long Island City, if I remember correctly. But they closed those down pretty quickly and then decided to um, concentrate on the area around their you know, industrial works in the Midwest, which allows them to to get Chicago jazz at its inception and a lot of other sorts of musics that the labels, the big labels on the East Coast had had missed to that point. Yeah. And so this is kind of where I think it, it, it's useful to talk about kind of what I see is the, the second primary kind of story that you tell in this book, which is one about genre. Um, and the, the idea of mm-hmm. genre as a, a much less obvious thing <laughs> than one would think. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you see genre as kind of a the way I understand the, your description of it is it's both uh, a function of how, you know, these companies are producing this music, how mm-hmm. people are kind of engaging with this music, and then also how the other genres, I guess, in the in the listening space, <laughs> to use a kind of tech vocabulary, that they're often defined against themselves. And then in some ways, they, they often like crystallize and then almost become traditions that even if they came about in these really contingent, almost haphazard fashions, then get picked up and kind of taken forward. I mean, there's so many ways to think about genre. Uh, but for me, I'm really thinking about genre here as uh, um, ways to categorize audiences and then to sell to to that audience. So I'm thinking of genre as this way of shaping uh, and identifying an audience. uh, And then um, around this genre, there's this sort of cultural circulation uh, between uh, musicians, uh, record company folks, um, retailers, consumers, and, you know, trying to sort of think about these audiences and these uh, these certain kinds of relationships uh, in a way that packages people and packages music and packages in a lot of cases social uh, divisions in different sorts of ways so um I, for the people who were involved genres were a means to an end you know it's a a way to package recordings and sell to a specific group of people, they were thinking very much in terms of niches early on. There's this fascinating moment, the um, the A&R scout, they weren't called A&R scouts yet, but I think they called them record men, although there were some women involved in scouting and recording. But Ralph Peer, who worked for Victor Records after uh, coming from OK Records, he had been selling and packaging so-called foreign music to immigrant groups, you know, so like Irish records for, you know, Irish Americans and, uh, you know, sort of uh, Spanish language records or Hebrew records or, you know, whatever it was. And then, uh, you know, OK Records famously records Mamie Smith and her song Crazy Blues becomes this huge hit. And the 
uh, Pierre starts to realize that you could sell uh, to domestic niche audience as much in the same way that they had been selling to uh, international or immigrant groups, which is fascinating to me because like, it almost took them understanding the way they sold music to, you know, people either new to America or outside of America. They had to understand that before they could figure out how to sell music to rural African-Americans or rural whites. I mean, it's so strange to me the way that comes about, but they start printing up separate catalogs and separate, you know, there are separate uh, matrix numbers on the recordings, you know, in the catalog listings. And they start to target very specific uh, audiences in very specific ways. First, it's jazz, um, particularly hot jazz. Then um, blues, uh, usually female-led small jazz groups. And then finally, in the late 20s, what was called old-time music and later hillbilly music, uh, what we now know as country. So uh, it's this whole process um, genre. Yeah, it's these. It's uh, it's less to me about like musicological questions and much more about companies trying to organize audiences um, to sell to. It, it, it's interesting because of those three genres you just mentioned, they all function kind of differently and, and and operate differently in this cultural matrix at the time. Um, clearly jazz in some ways uh, seems like it has somewhat closer ties to the um, kind of mainstream of the music industry. And, and certainly it ends up connecting with Tin Pan Alley in, in all kinds of complicated ways, maybe because Tin Pan Alley had already gone through an extensive period of ragtime production. Mm-hmm. It's actually useful uh, to think of it this way. And actually, one of my former professors, uh, Craig Watkins, who his first book, I think, is uh, on hip hop and cinema, you know, he really saw, when I was talking to him about jazz, he very much saw present day hip hop in the way I was saying it. Because, you know, by the end of the 20s, you know, jazz starts as this little niche, right? Um, out of New Orleans and then up to Chicago. And it's very you know, narrow in terms of audience, but then, you know, jazz becomes essentially the pop music of the decade, but it never stops being that niche at the same time. So in the same way that you have, you know, mega stars in, uh, in present hip hop, you also have these small labels and emerging talents and it remains this niche at the same time. But yeah, certainly by the end of the 1920s, jazz is understood to be the pop music of the uh, of the moment. Um, it's really synonymous with the word, you know, popular music, uh, the phrase. And then blues, right, moves from known as race records. There's this whole discourse through the late teens and early 20s in the African-American press about music that will uplift the race and race records in certain ways is understood that way, but there's also this exploitative element in some of the music. There's also this weird class dynamic where um, in race records, you start to hear voices that you hadn't previously heard in terms of African-Americans on records. This was not minstrelsy. But on the other hand, you know, middle class and upper middle class African-Americans are maybe kind of uncomfortable with 
with uh, the music of Mamie Smith or some of these blues artists. Uh, so there's some class tensions um, there. Uh, and some of the African-American-owned labels, like Black Swan, initially they're putting out African-American singing opera and uh, this sort of thing to try and sort of assert uh, their, um, their, you know, sort of trying to place some sort of cultural equity uh, into play. Uh, through asserting, you know, high culture, essentially. No, 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 no. They're trying to assert high culture. And then um, I'm thinking about um, Angela Davis's work on female blues musicians, where different class and gendered perspective and really, uh, you know, yeah, like, like much of the early black entertainment industry, simultaneously a... And giving voice to a group of people that had not had a voice, but also it's being filtered by these mm-hmm. almost exclusively white scouts and producers and record executives who are not just making the money, but determining how it's going to be packaged and distributed and what material is going to get pressed. Right. And, and so the white companies were more comfortable with recording a, a at least initially, a wider swath of African African American music than perhaps what some of the black owned labels uh, like Black Swan were at least initially. And so there's some interesting class dynamics. I think you can also see it in you know white companies taking so long to actually record rural white music essentially you know they only you know they start recording jazz in earnest in 1920 they start recording the blues uh, around the same time in earnest i mean they'd done a little bit before but this is really expanding and they don't really get to you know rural white music in any concerted way until like 1927 it takes them a long time to get there i sense a certain kind of class discomfort uh, that we see in the in the sort of African American responses to blues, um, I think you see the same thing in uh, sort of white middle class responses to some early old time and hillbilly records. I should also say it's super weird to me that you know old time music as a category as a genre begins looking back in this nostalgic way. So it's a genre that's emerging. And as it emerges, it's packaged as this backward looking, nostalgic sort of uh, genre. So the radio historian, Michelle Helms calls, uh, you know, barn dance country radio, uh, you know, she locates it in what she calls the backwoods of modernity, which is exactly what I think is going on. It's weird. you know, old time and hillbilly music is this kind of nostalgic looking back, but it's using sound recordings and increasingly radio by the late 1920s to assert its cultural presence, uh, which I find so interesting and somewhat contradictory. So you've got these, kind of zoom out a little bit, you've got these increasingly 
successful smaller labels, uh, Paramount, um, OK, and you have the major labels, and then you also have kind of as we as we kind of roll through the twenties, new uh, industries that begin to to impact the record industry. So you have, in particular, you have the rise of radio, and you've got the incorporation of sound into film. Hugely important. Both those are really, really important. And it's initially tied to technological changes, you know, electrical recording and playback, electrical broadcast through radio changes a whole lot. Um, And radio, the recording industry and film are all uh, uh, incorporating electrical recording and playback, although, you know, depending on who could afford it and when they could afford it or if they could afford it. So just for people who might not know what that is, can you just say kind of what electrical recording is and so instead of record, let's let's think about a recording studio for a minute. Up to this point, uh, you know, studios there would be this huge horn, maybe a couple horns in the front of the room that were meant to sort of capture sound waves as they travel through the air, Uh, and then that would go down to this diaphragm that would vibrate. And then those vibrations would be recorded mechanically to disc. Uh, It was not, you know, there were no microphones. And so if you wanted to be louder, you'd be closer to the horn. If you wanted to be quieter, you would move further away from the horn. The, you know, certain instruments that would be harder to hear would be moved forward or whatever. Uh, But suddenly with microphones the you know the whole thing changes the sort of specificity of it uh in radio you know radio is really built around microphones and uh, uh, electrical broadcasting sound recording is looking kind of like old hat by the late 20s you know these years of these old acoustic phonographs they don't sound particularly good um, people are faced with the decision, you know, am I going to buy another acoustic phonograph, you know, or am I going to buy a radio? And the sound quality of radios in the late 20s, early 30s were far superior to the old acoustic uh, record players. So this was a, a, a sonic move up. And, uh, and then you just have the fact that if you buy the radio once, you hear different music on the device every day. So that was huge. So given the choice as to whether to, you know, buy more sound recordings for their old phonograph or buy a radio, many people chose radio. On the film side, uh, the central genre, the central emerging genre out of Hollywood in the late 20s and early 30s uh, uh, was musicals, right? So they were getting into musicals for the first time and they had this Hollywood had this voracious appetite for music all of a sudden. So music companies, sound recording companies really took advantage of that. At the same time, radio keeps growing and growing. And the record business is trying to to change and adapt. Uh, The business starts to sell combination phonograph radio players, and they're getting rid of their old acoustic designed machines and switching to electric phone, you know, record players. 
but a lot of it's too little too late and the radio business is so powerful at this point that it's looking to buy some industrial works some big factories that could make more radios and in 19 in around 1927 28 victor decides to sell out to banking interests uh who in turn sell victor to rca the radio corporation of america and by the end of the 20s uh victor has become rca victor and the camden factory was converted into making radios the record side of rca victor becomes kind of a sideline uh and um the company focuses on radio columbia falls so hard in the late 20s and early 30s as radio rises that radio companies kind of buy up the remnants of the company and they they pass it around over the 1930s things really fall far for columbia records which is hard to imagine because it's this you know columbia has this uh, kind of almost mythological history in the music business but by 1934 things had become so bad for columbia that a radio company called grigsby grunow owned it and through the Columbia name, they attempted to market a home dry cleaning kit. Um, this is how desperate Columbia uh, had become at that point. And so its main value was in its industrial works uh, for radio companies and just the Columbia name. So so Victor is no longer Victor. It's RCA Victor. Columbia gets passed around and debased <laughs> through the 30s. Edison folds up its operations a couple of weeks after the stock market crash. And um, later on, we found out through looking in the logbooks that Edison had been running at a loss for a number of years in the 20s. He'd been losing money on the record division. So all the big labels are kind of either gone or not what they once were. And then the smaller labels either were sold you know, like I think uh, the Jeanette record label eventually gets sold out to the company that becomes Decca. It seems like by the 1930s that the record business is over. Uh, it actually starts to reemerge in the uh, late 1930s. You get the rise of swing music and this new youth culture, you know, Sinatra's on the rise and uh, big band swing is, is starting in the late 30s, early 40s. You also get the reemergence of sound recordings via the jukebox. So jukeboxes become really important. And so as bad as things look in the 30s for the record business, it does reemerge in part through radio's uh, um, rediscovery of some of its uses. Later on when rock and roll emerges and radio content is... Uh, heading to television, um, sound recording and music is going to become crucial again to radio, and it's really going to save radio as a platform. So there's this like interesting back and forth between uh, sound recording and radio over time. And when the record industry, as you say, kind of reemerge, you know, what pieces of it managed to survive and then reemerge, um, and you kind of gesture to this in their, your book, they, they, they kind of survive by only putting out records that sell to the greatest common denominator, which again leaves many of the communities that we've been talking about 
kind of out in the cold and then creates the opportunity for the independent label boom that brings us, like you say, rock and roll, R&B, country music, um, as the great cycle of capitalism continues. <laughs> it's really true. I mean, that you can see these, you start to see some of the same patterns happening over and over and over, some of the same discourse, some of the same debates, some of the same anxieties, some of the same desires. Like we, we do tend to repeat these cycles. I mean, in each case, there's something new and unique, but there's a certain comfort in starting to be able to identify some of these patterns. You know, there are some success stories that come out of the 30s. Uh, a lot of those labels that were so crucial that recorded these, you know, the great, you know, this great expansion of American vernacular culture on record. But a lot of those companies go under during the 30s. Some of them survive, some little niches survive. But you're right, the 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 companies that prosper into the 1930s, uh, I would include Brunswick here, led by Jack Cap. Uh, those companies, the ones that really found a, a a place in the 1930s, were ones that were focused on um, the most popular repertoire, um, and you know the 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 standards and the the hits of the day. Um, maybe kind of a reassertion of Tin Pan Alley in a certain way. Um, and then also those artists that are able to not only be successful in sound recording and records, you know, records being released, but also artists that can uh, assert their celebrity in radio and in film and on stage. So the companies are looking for a broader audience through this kind of more popular approach and less niche approaches. And then the celebrities, the, the artists themselves start to understand that they want to do much of the same thing um, and try to play across media platforms to, uh, to find their way. And some artists obviously were more successful than others. Um, this is a tiny little detail that I found about um, Louis Armstrong. In the early 30s, he travels to Denmark and he's recorded, he and his band were recorded for a, like a film short in Denmark doing Dinah, the song Dinah, and a couple others. But apparently his passport, when it lists occupation on Louis Armstrong's passport, he lists his occupation as actor, which I think is really fascinating. After a decade of, of being a musician, he's starting to get into film, and his musical repertoire is becoming more popular and uh, varied. Um, some of the niche artists that we we associate with, you know, kind of the rhetoric of authenticity now, like um, uh, Jimmy Rogers or Robert Johnson, you know, these were popular performers, right? They had pretty broad repertoires depending on whom they were performing for. They, uh, I think, it all gets so gauzy and um, mythologized by the time you get to the present day. I mean, we, you know, most Americans were fed blues and country through uh, rock and roll and through rock. I mean, how many of us learned about blues performers through the Rolling Stones um, or Eric Clapton or, or whoever it was? Uh, 
way back when. So we're getting, we're, we're accessing these performers and the companies they worked for through decades of like folklorists and record collectors and business executives and later musicians kind of romanticizing and mythologizing and blurring what actually occurred. So without trying to squeeze all the magic out of what happened, um, I wanted to try and retrieve some of the original contexts because I think those contexts are magic in a way too. I don't feel like I'm ruining anybody's uh, romance here. Um, I just think I'm telling a different one. I think these stories are as interesting as the ones about, you know, that kind of mythologize these figures in, uh, in ways that are maybe less than accurate. I did want to kind of go back to that, that last point about the performers these performers who were, these performers who were able to make it in the 30s because i actually think that it offers this moment offers a lot of really fascinating parallels to our own moment today and in a way that kind of um undercuts a lot of the 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 claims about how unique what's happening today is right because if you go back to how you kind of we left the the broader setting right radio's exploding there's uh, still an ability to play live, do live appearances all over. There's now Hollywood. Um, so you can, whether you are a star in a movie or as for a lot of these performers are able to do kind of almost like music video-esque appearances in films that aren't particularly about them. It's like, oh, there's Louis Armstrong and he's going to play for four minutes. And now it's going to be back to the romance. Um and still able to sell some records. And you kind of, you write some about the ways in which you kind of get these intermedia stars, these stars who are able to work across various media platforms in a way that really reminds me of like the people who, you know, Cardi B, who's on YouTube and TikTok and music videos. I know. I was I was thinking about Cardi B here too. I Sam absolutely. I was like, yeah, like Louis Armstrong would have totally had a TikTok. Like <laughs> absolutely he would have, you know. Bessie Smith, yeah, she would have been on YouTube, of course. Um I mean, it's really fascinating. Uh you know, I, like I I love, you know, uh, to me, you know, obviously there's a lot of people trying it. Louis Armstrong uh, does, I think, a, a, a great job in doing it. Paul Whiteman, maybe a little less successful, although you know he's still on TV in the 50s. I mean, the guy just kind of stuck with it. Al Jolson, I mean, a lot of different people um, were involved uh, in this sort of thing. Uh, originally, a number of them were appearing in like these film shorts, they were meant to be played in uh, movie theaters. Uh, so uh, Jimmy Rogers is in this short film that appears uh, the same year as uh, Bessie Smith short appears. That's how it initially starts. They're doing these sort of you know short subjects at the beginning of uh, evening at the movies. Yeah, so they're looking to break in, and then after this period of you know kind of short musical subjects, then they do start getting roles, like like you said, performing within films and then later um, 
maybe even acting. Like, you know, by the 40s, you get like Hoagie Carmichael appearing in movies as an actor as much as a musician. Um, uh, but I'll give you one example of just how kind of intermedial it all was. Um, Paul Whiteman, the band leader, um, famous for his kind of ample size, and uh, he he was uh, kind of an I, I, weird vibe. It's a weird vibe. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> that music- I mean, and the little mustache. Yeah, he's got that little mustache. He comes out of this classical tradition, and he is responsible for like making jazz symphonic, which is going to have an impact on swing and some of that stuff later. It's not bad. I don't hate right. it. Actually, it's kind of odd. I mean, to our, I mean, he he was called the king of jazz. He knew he was not the king of jazz. He would tell anyone who would listen. Um, uh, and he was a big fan of a lot of the African American progenitors. Um, but yeah, so he he uh, was the major band leader of the era, and he created a lot of stars coming out of his band, Bing Crosby. Um, Bit Spiderbeck, people like that. But so he eventually figures out uh, a way uh, to connect up with Universal Pictures. They want him to do a film, and it's during this period when musicals are so popular. And uh, they put together a film for him called The King of Jazz, and it's like a musical review. It's essentially a stage show, um, but it is like crazy jazz excess um, these huge sets and just bizarre um, skits and vignettes and some of the, certainly some of the racism of the time is, is in there. Um, but it's really worth seeing. It's, it's so interesting. Um, and so, so Paul Whiteman and his band travel out to Hollywood to, to make King of Jazz. And on the way, they're doing a whistle stop tour by, by train. And so the band is going out to Hollywood and he's doing also doing a radio show called the old gold uh, radio hour. And so Paul Whiteman is stopping in these towns and doing performances and doing his radio show on his way out to Hollywood to do King of jazz. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's film, it's sound recordings, it's radio, it's live performance all at once. And, uh, um, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, the intermedial thing becomes hugely important, not just for music companies, record companies, but also uh, for performers and recording artists. And we usually associate it, we think about it as something new, you know, every once in a while I'll read a article that talks all about, you know, oh, convergence, you know, stardom in the era of convergence. And now, you know, stars have to appear on all these sorts of platforms and do all these kinds of things. And maybe they've multiplied, but it's largely the same thing that's happening, you know, almost a century ago now. Um, And so uh, I think that's worth kind of pointing out. And, you know, when the record industry is bought up by radio and then kind of also absorbed into film in certain ways. I mean, it's the first major entertainment conglomeration of the 20th century. And we've just had, you know, consolidation after consolidation after consolidation in, uh, ever since. Right. And we think of those as new too, and maybe the size of those mergers are, are new, but 
the impulse and the technological and business sense tied to it, it's old. You know, we've been doing this a long time now. Well, Kyle, um, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks, this Sam. Is, I mean, it's, it's really, you ask really great questions, and I, I had a wonderful time. And I really like the podcast uh, and what you're doing. It's pretty wonderful. <laughs> <laughs>